Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bruce Kasman, as I said, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the chief economist at J.P. Morgan. Great to have you with us. And uh, I wonder if we could just start with your forecast for, for global growth. We were Oh, I thought you were going to start oh, yeah. with Bitcoin. Okay, well, fair enough. We'll go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have two blocks. We can wind our way to that. Uh, maybe no, we're not. Show goes. No, we won't. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, we were focused on what the IMF and the World Bank uh, concluded, were saying, last week uh, while Tom was in Washington, uh, D.C. How's your forecast changed, uh, if at all? And uh, what's your outlook here as we, as we head to 2018? So we've been upbeat and we've been basically looking for a transition as we move through the middle of this year from an economy that was getting some benefits from just fading the drags that hit us in 2014 in emerging markets and the commodity space to one where we have a more organic business-led recovery as behavior combines with supportive financial conditions, sentiment rising, and starts to be synchronized across the world. And the good news is that's exactly what we see happening. I think the big news in the last few months is a pickup in business spending. The CapEx story is looking good. And the breadth of that, I think, carrying across the world. There's a tempering force, I think, from China, which we do think is slowing into the second half of the year, but I don't think it's going to hurt things too badly. Uh, And I think the outlook looks bright. And I think it's helped, of course, by the fact that at this stage, we don't have a central bank inflation issue. But that is looming. I think labor markets keep tightening. I think we do have a problem that markets are very complacent about where central banks have to go. But the good news is I don't think that's a story for the next two or three months. I think it is a story as we look out for the next 12, 18 months. Fair to say a theme at those annual meetings was global inflation, low inflation globally. Uh, And I wonder sort of how unique it is in in each part of the world. Is there there something unifying the, the low inflation that we're seeing? Well, I think there's a structural set of stories here around globalization, around the idea that um, technology is helping keep prices low. But I think there's a business cycle story that's working here. I think you can see it in the pipeline. You can see it in the commodity markets. Uh, You can also see the labor market tightening continuing here. Uh, So I think the balance here is that we're in a low inflation world. We've been in a low inflation world really for two decades right now, at least in the advanced economies. Um, But I do think the arrow is pointing modestly higher here. And it's pointing modestly higher, of course, in a world in which central bank policies are still super accommodative. And that's the the tension here. Uh, The saving grace would be if we get the business spending pickup, provide a productivity boost. And I think there is a bit of that happening. I just wouldn't count on that so much to to offset the natural dynamics of what we have, which is a strong uh, demand picture with still pretty weak supply uh, picture around it. What's holding that back domestically uh, as you see it or as you, you think about what might be, be holding it back? Of course, Kevin Hassett from the Council of Economic Advisors suggesting that uh, tax reform would be the thing that would catalyze a, a big change there, laying out his case that uh, you know corporate tax reform would would change a whole lot, including uh, the the situation for a lot of people here uh, in in the U.S. How much of a catalyst do you think that would be? What would it take to to get that soft data to move the the hard data to to get that optimism to translate to companies spending more or hiring more? Well, I think we are seeing companies spending more. I think the hiring picture has been good and will continue to be good. So I think the question is, what can we do to catalyze a, an improvement in, in underlying productivity, perhaps labor supply as well? Uh, I think if we had good reform on the tax front, I think we could 
generate some of that. I think sometimes people overestimate the uh, benefits of that from the supply side relative to the demand side influence. And that's, I think, the problem here is we have a, an economy operating at full employment right now. So I think you have to be careful here not to push too much on the demand side and focus more on supply side evidence. And I think in the tax reform debate here, we've shifted from a a Republican plan that, you know, a year ago looked like very heavily on reform and now is shifting much more towards talking basically about tax cuts. Bruce Kessman with us with J.P. Morgan. David Gurren, Time Keen, say good morning to all of you across Yankees America. What a great <laughs> game last night. I actually watched too much. Of it. I love this five o'clock start. Dude. Yeah, it's it was a, better than the It's a great That's and beautiful thing. Like, oh, look, the seventh <laughs> inning. I could watch it. Stay up Don't you agree, Bruce? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, we used to have day games at, yeah. in the World Series. And uh, these ideas of starting the games at eight and going I mean, on to midnight or one. I can't, insane. I, can't that. <laughs> I, I mean, I remember Veda Pinson of the Cincinnati Reds, who was one of my heroes. Uh, I believe it gets Tony Kubek and the New York Yankees, and you could actually watch it as a kid. How novel an I- <laughs> idea, which goes, you know, which frankly goes into the work week that we're in right now. We so- somewhat have two Americas. We have an America working 70 hours a week, and we got an America working 22.4 hours a week. Mm-hmm. That's not healthy, is it? No. What, the, what What you're saying, I think, is what's not healthy here primarily is we have a uh, a labor force where we still have underutilized resources in some places, which don't look easy to access in an economy in which we're Were they always there back to 1776? Has that always been the case, or is it really unique this time around? I'm not familiar with the data for the 18th century, (laughs) but... I We're do get Ron Chernow back. I do think what we, what we, I'm, sure from, I'm sure if we had my care, he would be able to <laughs> opine on that. Uh, but I do think something that has happened in the last 10 to 15 years, yeah. which is pretty important, is how low the participation rate has become. Some of that is the demographics. It's people like us, Tom, who are getting older and leaving the workforce. But the participation rate of prime age males has gone down in a way which I think is unfortunately, uh, you know, partly reflecting the forces of disruptions yeah. in the economy, mm-hmm. people on disability, things like that, which structurally is not not a good thing for the economy. David, here's an email from Al from New Jersey. Uh, Leaving the workforce. Good idea. <laughs> uh, I mentioned uh, China a few moments ago. We had the kickoff of this party congress a few uh, hours ago. What are you listening for as all of this, uh, as this plays out uh, in Beijing? We had the, the opening speech from the, the Chinese premier. Uh, what are you going to be listening for when it comes to policy? What are you going to look for signs of, of how uh, changes to policy, continuation to policy is going to be telegraphed? Well, I, I think we have to look at the party congress as being more long-term oriented in terms of uh, what kind of policy initiatives we're going to hear. So it is important to get a sense as we read through the speeches where the priorities are shifting. But I think it's a mistake to think we're going to find out anything about what's going to happen in the next six to 12 months. That's going to play out in a a slower process. Uh, our basic call here is that we're not looking to see the party Congress change the, the direction China is on, at least in the shorter term. And we do think that direction is towards some modest slowing, uh, not one that is very disruptive for the global economy, but one, as I said earlier, tempers a little bit this very buoyant picture we see uh, across Europe uh, and the Americas right now. Come back here just a moment, but uh, let's set the table for the next block. Uh, I imagine trade is is still a huge issue uh, in that part of the world. We see a number of countries that are trying to continue with TPP, sans yep. the, the the U.S. Uh, how large does that loom in conversations about Chinese the Chinese economy? 
Well, I think for China, trade is a pretty darn important part sure. of their growth strategy. And I think they see an opportunity here with the U.S. pulling out of TPP uh, to become more integrated uh, with the region, with become more integrated with the world. I, I think TPP is a bit of a lost opportunity for us. I think it's much smaller in scope than the risks we have if we start to tear up NAFTA or we begin to engage in more protectionist measures. Yeah. As I was saying earlier to Tom, I think – it's very important to realize there are problems in trade and we should be working to try to fix them, but we should be trying to work to fix them by opening up China, well, not by closing down the United States to trade. We were with Bruce Kasman of J.P. Morgan talking of any number of topics. Sometimes in our break, folks, we get these great ideas. We're going to talk about Yankees, Astros, but we'll try to get back here to adult material. Uh, trade, are imports different now than imports of 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, in the granular data, which you guys are acclaimed on, is is the makeup of imports different? Um, well, I think what you're seeing is, is generally uh, greater integration in goods uh, with the continued penetration into U.S. consumer spending on the import side. That's a trend that's been in place, and I don't think it's, it's really shifted. I think we are seeing a slow but steady grind towards having some greater integration in services trade. And that to me is actually, if we wanted to think sort of forward, if looking Please. five, 10 years and want to Please. talk about where there's an opportunity for, you know, boosting the supply side, boosting uh, growth, it's opening up trade and services, which by the way, TPP would have started that process with regard to the uh, U.S. and the Asian economies. That's still probably an under underutilized part of what the global yeah. global integration story is about. Uh, it's moved forward. You know, I think we have more integration in terms of people doing things in the services yeah. area, but it's still, I think, got a long way potentially are, to go. Are we going to do TPP without calling it TPP because that has to do with President Obama? I mean, basically, are we going to have the same ballet with put a different stick a different label on it? I'd, I'd certainly be in favor of that, but I don't see the political see process it, yeah. going in that direction. You know, you maybe maybe there's something there I'm not seeing, but I'm I'm worried about about things going more more negatively on a whole bunch of fronts on trade here. I think that's one of the big risks in the in the global outlook right now. Our colleague Jennifer Jacobs yesterday at the uh, joint press conference at the White House asked the president about the search for a new Fed chair, and he confirmed we've got these five front runners. He's meeting with Janet Yellen a bit later. Uh, this week to talk to her about her future. Uh, and so we'll find out soon, I guess, before that trip to, to Asia here in a few weeks' time, who's going to be sitting at the head of the table uh, in the Eccles building. What's uh, What are you watching as these these interviews take place? Uh, how much difference do you think it would be to have a uh, Kevin Warsh in that chair or a John Taylor uh, in that chair in terms of the policy that's laid out now, the path that we're on? Uh, how much can one person, uh, albeit one person heading up uh, the FOMC, make a difference at this point? So I think the first thing to say is that leaving aside the issue of hawkish and dovish, it's good to see that the five names that are there all look like people who who would be, generally speaking, qualified to do the job. Uh, that's something we couldn't have counted on thinking about the process two or three months ago. So then the, the question you're asking, which is important, is how much does the chair matter? And I think uh, the chair is always going to be given authority at the Fed to have leadership. But the chair has to get that leadership partly by working to form consensus on the committee. So if you would think about it, and I don't really want to project sure. the stance that individuals will take. If you think about somebody coming in who would want to jerk the Fed into a more uh, you know, significant different direction, the committee would pull them back 
inherently because the power of the chair comes from the committee. They don't have that uh, by law. Uh, so I think I think the uh, chair matters. I think you have people who would uh, be on the more hawkish side and perhaps on the more dovish side. Uh, people who have different attitudes about balance sheet. But I think it's hard to see a new Fed chair come in and really change the direction of the committee, uh, certainly over the over the near term. Does the vice chair matter just as much? Uh, we uh we're losing, or we've lost. Uh, Stan Fisher is the vice chair uh, of the uh, of the Federal Reserve. Uh, a huge shoes to fill, suffice to say. How important is that role? Are we paying enough attention to to the the, the replacement of, of him going forward? Well, usually the vice chair is is to some degree chosen by the chair, or at least the chair has an important influence on it. So one of the interesting questions is whether or not, as we have four seats that are going to get filled at the Federal Reserve Board. To what degree is the chair chosen and then the other members uh, connected to the chair in some way or do we have different – so if we have someone who's chosen completely independently of the chair, then I think you have less connectivity and potentially less power for the vice chair by them by themselves. But I do think it's important to think about four seats and the chair being the most important by far. But the idea that you can have a broader shift in terms of Fed policy mm-hmm. if you change all four people in a certain in a certain direction. It's hard to do that, find four people who will, who will all Coalesce, shift in the same yeah. direction. But certainly it matters that we have that many seats open right now. Bruce Kasman, thank you so much for J.P. Morgan with Bloomberg Surveillance Television and Radio uh, this morning. Uh, we oh, oh, we didn't get to Bitcoin, did we? <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Well, David Girl, why don't you bring in our extinguished guest? <laughs> some cheers erupted in some corners of the Capitol yesterday when a Republican Senator Lamar Alexander announced he'd forged a deal with his Democratic counterpart, Patty Murray of Washington State, uh, on health care. Uh, there were some cheers, as I mentioned. There were some who were not in favor of this bipartisan piece of legislation. Among them, Mark Walker, the congressman from the 6th District in North Carolina. Uh, he's the head of the Republican Study Committee. We've talked to him from time to time. Good to have him with us here. Congressman, let me just start with your reaction. You can explain more fully how you feel about this piece of legislation that these two senators uh, have crafted. It seems like they've created the fix the president said he was looking for. Why are you not in favor of what they've come up with? Well, I, I think any time, first of all, going back to what Lamar Alexander said yesterday, that he was encouraged by an increasingly potential group that was supported. That's just Washington's speech. This is, uh, CSRs have been a mess from day one. Uh, 2016, the House sued, and it was ruled uh, certainly illegal. And I don't know that it does anything long-term to be able to resolve some of the things that we're seeing when it comes to the increased premiums. What do your constituents in Burlington, in Mebane, throughout the 6th District say to you about these CSRs, these cost reduction subsidies? Uh, I imagine a lot of them depend on them. Uh, And what we have here is a president doing away with them, kicking the can over to Congress. And uh, it's going to take some time to figure all this out. I know that you'd uh, rather see them go away uh, entirely, see this law changed completely. But there got to be people who talk to you who are worried about what it means for their coverage. I would be remiss if I didn't say that there is some concern. Trying to find that balance is always a challenge. Just two days ago, I heard from a gentleman uh, who had received a letter from uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield here in North Carolina. He is a cancer survivor. He's mortgaged his house, a second mortgage. His premiums are getting ready to jump $1,500 to $3,000. So so it's, it's, it's those folks as well that we have to represent. And that's not even talking about, yeah, I remember former President Clinton talked about what it does to the small businesses. And uh, those, that's a component of this as well, as long as these mandates continue to reduce the growth in some of these areas, specifically here in North Carolina. 
Let me ask you about the role insurance companies should be playing here. I've noticed a change in tone on the part of the president toward insurance companies. Back in February, he invited a lot of big CEOs over to the White House. He praised them for the work they're doing now. Uh, he's talked an awful lot about the degree to which the government has been propping up their uh, stock prices. That's one thing that, that he's mentioned about them. What role do you want to see insurance companies playing here going forward? Well, I know this. Uh, under Obamacare, people are hurting, but insurance companies are not. And I, I want to be careful before we set a precedent that we're literally writing checks out of Congress to these insurance companies, whether you want to call it a bailout or, or anything else, a, a subsidy. That, that's, a, that's a crucial concern that should be um, long-term. Where does this stop? Uh, what, what happens if we start doing this to other companies or, or other entities? And I think that's one of the reasons that many Republicans and others in the House have such an issue with this. Uh, just joining us, Congressman Mark Walter uh, Walker, rather, the Republican of the Piedmont of North Carolina. Uh, Congressman, you are the fabric of the Piedmont. Your father was a minister. You're a Baptist minister. And you have a campaign approach that is absolutely original for conservatives in America. How do you adapt and adjust to the certitude of non-religious conservatives, particularly the more conservative types? You've pushed against that certitude year after year after year of your public service. Where's the humility among conservatives today? Well, it's, it's dissipated, to be frankly with, frank with you. That, that is something that, that we are continuing to call for, that unless there are certain relationships built on trust, that we're never going to resolve some of these issues. We see the rhetoric even continue to grow. One of the things that I'm most proud of is, is a great relationship with the chancellor of North Carolina a and I'm privileged to represent the largest historical black college university in the country. In fact, we launched a, a paid internships for HBCU students. That's important to uh, my family. It's even personal, but my wife being a, a two-time graduate uh, of, of one of the HBCUs, this is something that we've got to be able to continue to work on because the condescension that we see from some circles, whether you're right or left, does not allow us to really bring solutions, but it only creates more division. Let me ask you lastly here in the time we have with you, I know you're busy, about the uh, the opioid crisis tour you embarked on a couple days ago, a two-day tour throughout your district. Uh, I know you went yes. to uh, Elon University for a roundtable. You uh, went to an alcohol and drug abuse treatment center. What did folks there say to you about what role they think the federal government should play? Of course, we've watched here as Congressman Tom Marino, your colleague in the Capitol, has uh, stepped away from, from uh, consideration to be the, uh, the drug czar, as it's called. What did they say about the role the federal government should play in curbing this crisis? Well, obviously, uh, anytime you're dealing with some of the local, even state agencies, funding is always a concern. Uh, our job is to make sure that every dollar uh, from taxpayers that we receive, that we're being good stewards. Uh, but, but it's different than talking with people who are working in this area as a people literally walking through the journey of addiction. I, I wish more of us or more people would get out there and see some of the heartache of the last six years. We've gone from 17,000 deaths to over 60,000 deaths last year. This is an epidemic proportion. We've got to be working on, on prevention. We've got to be working with people who are walking through, but we've also got to make sure long-term, what is it that we do to be able to, to offer these people an opportunity to get back on track, to fulfill as a person of faith the very path that I feel like God's created for them. Mark Walker, great to speak with you. That's Congressman Mark Walker, the 6th District in North Carolina. Let me bring in our, our, our next guest, and David will have more intelligent converse, uh, questions than I will. Enda Kenny, uh, to be direct, is a former prime minister 
of the courageous people of Ireland, who, as anybody knows in the Wall Street racket, were the first people to really say, we got to be adult. We got to take responsibility for this debacle of 2007, 2008. We can talk about the financial aspect. Did you know, and I, I went back, David, I looked at some of Gordon Brown's comments of 07, 08. Did you know there's a thing called Brexit now? Uh-huh. I don't know if you're aware yes. of that, but <laughs> there it is. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But I've got a, a far more important question. Go for it. Uh, and a Kenny uh, with us. And uh, when I was a kid, we would watch Wide World of Sports, and we were transfixed by Irish football. You you are knee-deep in this. With Mayo, is it? <laughs> the, mm-hmm. Mayo? Mm-hmm. What do you think of the National Football League in America? When the sport you play in Ireland is so tough and so visceral, how do you perceive American football? Well, first of all, uh, Irish football, we call it Gaelic football because uh, you have yeah. the association football, which, which in, in ordinary man's language is soccer. Right. Uh, but the, the, the Gaelic football is played to the highest level on a county basis. It's an amateur sport. The fitness levels are extraordinary, yeah. as are the skill levels. Um, and it's, it becomes really you know, a passionate existence on, based on the parishes, on the teams, and on the local communities. And then when they play for their county, they go to all-Ireland level and compete at a very, very high level. And if standard. somebody scores a touchdown or whatever, they're not doing all the fancy dance stuff no, they we're don't. doing in America. <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, obviously, we've had American football teams over in Ireland over the last number of years. Uh, Georgia Tech and Boston College, Notre Dame and the Navy the and so Professional on. teams like that, I understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, they've, and they've created great excitement and energy. Uh, I mean, the team numbers are huge, as distinct from, as, as distinct from Gaelic teams. Um, but obviously, the yeah. teams that did come to Ireland, you know, uh, brought a, a sense of great excitement and energy for the period. Okay, that were okay. there. And they were followed by 25,000 Americans, which was good for the hospitality well, sector. we got to make news for Boston 106.1 FM and, of course, Sirius XM uh, in a small town called South Bend. Who gets a bigger turnout, Notre Dame or Boston College? Um, well, I think when, the, when, when we tried to get the two of them together as, as often as we could because they, they, they create a, a sense of, um, of unprecedented passion in Ireland. Uh, listen, both colleges, both colleges have, uh, have, oh. have huge followings, a huge Irish diaspora. Don't ask me the numbers. I, I couldn't give you an answer. John Tucker, he, he is sounds so like a politician, doesn't He's he? He's so oh. smooth. David, save us from uh, for the fighting Irish. <laughs> All right. Well, let's segue to uh, something lighter here, that being the debate over Brexit. And uh, we've certainly heard uh, the, the, the degree to which those debates have soured some. David Davies saying that there was a deadlock. Uh, when last they met uh, in Brussels. How are you observing all of this unfold from where, where you sit? Where do you think things are headed? Well, you know what happened. Obviously, Eurosceptics in Britain. Um, Prime Minister Cameron said, if I win the election, um, I'll give you a referendum. That happened. The referendum was lost and he resigned. Right. It was a non-binding referendum. So Theresa May was elected as, as Prime Minister. And she gets on with a small majority, finding it difficult, has another election, loses that majority, is now propped up by the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. This is a very complicated matter. Yes. Uh, so, so what's going on now is the process before the big talks. And the process is triggered by the Prime Minister having written the article, uh, uh, article and the letter wanting to leave. That's due to take place in March of 2019. So Michel Barnier is the lead negotiator on behalf of the European Union. And he wants three things dealt with before they get down to real business. Those three things are, one, 
what is the cost that Britain must pay for leaving the European Union club? Secondly, what are the rights uh, guaranteed of European citizens living in Britain and British citizens living in Europe? And thirdly, what are you going to do about the question of the only land border within the European Union after Britain has left, and that's through Northern Ireland, which rights are now guaranteed under a separate and independent uh, Good Friday Agreement, which happened 20 years ago, mm. and that has to be preserved at all costs and will be preserved at all costs. These are complicated matters um, about some that, that people didn't ever think about, but they've got to deal with those three to a sufficient progress level before they start talking about trade. What does it mean, if this goes through, if we see the UK leave the, the European Union, what does it mean for, say, uh, a fisherman in Ireland who wants to sell his wares to uh, to Europe, say, and might customarily stop in the UK uh, along well, the way? Yeah, well, fishing is a complicated issue, uh, more so than most, because for Britain to leave fully, most of the quotas are caught in British waters. It would suit Britain to have a hard Brexit and just leave in the morning. But the negotiations on fishing have been developed over 50 years, and they're like layers of a fruit. You just can't dismantle them like that. But what it means, at the moment the European Union is a market of 500 million people and Britain's a very important part of that and it is part of the single market you can move capital goods services and people uh, it is part of the customs union where you have external tariffs but none internally now Britain wants to leave those two things and still have the same response and that's the problem you see there's no reason why Britain couldn't be a global power within the current European Union which is evolving and which started yeah. out as a peace process, mm. the most successful on the planet, but which to, has to move along with its own agenda. So it's, it's a real problem here. And until you get past those first three base points, right. you don't ever get to where you're going to talk about, uh, about uh, real trade. Right. And if that continues, politicians are going to have to make a decision. Otherwise, you end up in a catastrophic situation where there's a hard Brexit. On the border... Mr. Prime Minister, is Black Lion, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, there was a bombing in 1974, horrific bombing. What do you envision as the best outcome for Ireland and the United Kingdom at that border of Black Lion? What do you envision N16 looking like? Yeah. Well, if you drive from Dublin to Belfast now, you drive through Black Lion, there is no border. And that's operated since the Good Friday Agreement, and that's what we intend to keep. If you brought back what you call a hard border, customs posts and all of that... What would happen? You'd bring back sectarianism and you would have, you'd have untold trouble, and we're not going back there. There were 3,000 people bombed, murdered and maimed right. in that period. America was a great help to Ireland when President Clinton sent over George Mitchell. And after five years' work, the Good Friday Agreement was signed. It's an internationally binding agreement, lodged in the United Nations, accepted by America, by Europe, by Great Britain and by Ireland. So that's sacrosanct. And putting a hard border down on top of that would be absolutely catastrophic, and it won't happen. Right. This is a political problem. Uh, and for those who were advocating, you know, that we should leave, this is a matter that should have been considered far more carefully uh, in the run-up to the referendum. Right. But it's a real, it's a real issue, uh, and it's going to require a unique situation and a unique solution. Mr. Prime and Minister... there are a few around who can tell you what that is. David, jump in here with a... I have like eight questions, which means you and I have to go to Dublin to continue <laughs> sure, this conversation sure. with the Prime so. Minister... 
But David, jump in with your observation. Let me go in a different direction here for my last question. That is, we've seen uh, the Prime Minister of Greece travel to Washington to meet uh, with the President of the United States. And I, I want to ask you just what it's like to be the leader of a country meeting with the leader of another country. We hear a lot about the relationship that one leader develops with, with another. In such a short time frame, how do you get a sense of who the other leader is? How do you uh, develop warmth, develop a relationship well, in such a short period of time? Politics is always about people and governments yeah. about making decisions. The, the, the Greek Prime Minister is right. I was actually one of the first Prime Ministers to have the opportunity to meet President Trump in the White House. Um, it's the office that you talk about and the importance of it. Obviously, you know, the President of the United States, uh, the most powerful office on the planet, but it's, it's one that doesn't carry all of the authority that people might imagine. Mm. The President has responsibility over, you know, foreign affairs, foreign matters, foreign policy, the Pentagon and so on. But when you look for money... You've got to deal with the Congress and the houses of uh, houses of Parliament. So your American Constitution, the American courts, the American political system, uh, uh, all have distinct functions and the impact in one way or the other on the presidency. But I think it's very important for yeah. Europe to be over in America very often and America to be in Europe very often yeah. to understand the mechanics of this. Mm -hmm. Europe and America were always very close allies. The Marshall Plan, World War II, all of these things. The rebuilding of a peace process in Europe, which has now lasted for 60 years. There is no reason why we shouldn't be able to continue well, this uh, in the interest of the common humanity well, that we now share. We'd like to continue this conversation. And to Kenny, thank you so much. He is a former prime minister of Ireland. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.